Welcome to Deep Focus, a radio show about movies in New Haven. I'm your host, Tom Breen. On today's episode, the first segment of today's episode, we'll be talking with Connecticut filmmaker Nick Palmer. Nick is a young writer, director, and musician from Trumbull, Connecticut. One of his short films, called A Bottled Rose, will be playing this Sunday night at the Parkade Cinemas in Manchester, Connecticut, as part of a local showcase of New England filmmakers. We'll talk about his background, training, and interest in movies, uh, some of the films he's worked on to date, and some challenges and benefits of being a Connecticut-based filmmaker. For the second segment of the show, I'll be joined by WNHH station manager Lucy Gelman and New Haven Independent staff writer Alan Appel for a discussion of Indignation, the new movie adaptation of a 2008 Philip Roth novel about a young Jewish man from Newark, New Jersey, who finds himself isolated and confused in the sexually repressed heartland of Gentile America, Winesburg, Ohio. But first, I'm very happy to welcome to the studio Nick Palmer. Nick is a writer, producer, director, musician, and many other things besides from Trumbull, Connecticut. He's the founder of Parable Media, a graduate of Sacred Hearts Film and Television Master's Program, and the director of a number of Connecticut-based short films. Nick, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you on. Hi, Tom. It's a pleasure to be here. So I definitely want to talk a lot about your um, your own uh, work sure. behind the camera, you know, the movies that you've directed, the movies that you have composed music for, but we met a few weeks ago in a movie that you acted in, and I think that, from what I understand, that was a relatively new uh, artistic capacity of yours. You hadn't acted my, in a movie, yep, your was, acting debut. It was my acting debut. The, they unleashed upon the world. It was great. So we we met during the 48-hour film project New Haven, uh, which is an annual weekend-long competition to make a movie over two days that conforms to a certain set of arbitrarily assigned criteria. But you were on Russ Martin's Enormity Pictures team. So I was, yeah. Tell me a bit about how you ended up there and, and what your what your role and experience was like, uh, that 48 hour film project. Sure. Yeah. So I've actually been working with Russ for a little over two years now. Uh, he, he helped me out on my thesis project when I was in a master's program and he's a very, uh, adept filmmaker. He's a great Connecticut based, uh, producer. And, um, him and I just decided to tackle this crazy 48 hour film festival. Uh, we thought, Hey, you know, it, it's maddening enough to, to make a movie across a month. How about we condense it into 48 hours? And we, you know, pulled all of our hair out. We got it together, and it was it was a great time. And uh, you, Thomas, were the the journalist covering the whole the whole shebang. So it's... Uh, a pivotal role in any creative enterprise. Right? Oh, the person course. taking photos and yep. scribbling notes when yep. people are trying to frantically figure out exactly. what to do in their own. But how, how did you end up acting in that movie? If, if this was your first time acting, how did you get assigned that role? Well, I knew I wanted to be a part of it, but as far as the, the capacity in which I would be a part of it, it was really uh, you know up to Russ. And, and he and I just sort of collaborated we sort of just you know uh talked about where i would be uh best suited i i thought i could be like a writer or something but then he said no let's let's maybe have you uh, performing let's have you be an actor so i sort of channeled you know all of the uh sort of i don't know what the word for it is the sleaziness i had my kimono my my underwear my my fake yin yang tattoo and it was a great time and you had also, either cre- I think you were involved in creating, but you also um, helped uh, bring bring to the screen the lolly vape, which was the prop required for this event, right? This yes, is a combined was, lollipop and so one of e-cigarette. the rules of the of the forty eight hour 
film festivals that they give you a prop and uh, no matter how ridiculous the prop you they, they say okay you got to put it in your movie somehow so ours was um a lollipop and we decided to combine a vape cigarette you know one of these e-cigs with a lollipop thus creating the infamous e-lolly uh, patent pending <laughs> um you know, of course, at, you know, at the end of filming, they're like, yo, you have to patent this. And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure if this is where my enterprise starts <laughs> with the, the fake lolly cigarette. But uh, it was definitely, it was a great time. I, I'm, we utilized, you know, the criteria of the 48 hour pretty well. And we made uh, one heck of a short film. And, you know, now with this acting experience behind you, did it, did taking on that different role on a film set affect the way that you think about making movies at all? I mean, obviously you are um, primarily a, a director, but you also function in a number of different roles in a film set. And I think what we're going to be talking about primarily today are movies that you have directed. But taking on that role in front of the camera, how, how has that affected the way you think about your own work or about the way that movies get made? Well, it is actually a very, um, it's a very practical you know, thing to know about making movies is, is being on both sides of the camera. Um, I mean, it, it normally drives people crazy when they have to act and direct and, and do all that stuff. Um, being able to talk to actors and communicate with actors and know, you know, what they do as far as performing uh, really helps with direction and vice versa. You know, being an actor also helps you sort of take it easy on the director and <laughs> realize that, you know, he's lo losing pounds of hair a minute getting pulled out. But, um, you know, being a, a multidisciplined uh, producer and filmmaker, it really helps knowing, you know, it, it helps understanding all of the different parts of a, of making a film. Cause it, it really, it takes a village every time. It takes a lot of people, a lot of crazy people getting together and saying, all right, let's, let's do this for like 15 hours. And uh, knowing how to act and knowing how to direct and how to write, um, they all kind of go into one another. So, Well, and I think that's a good transition to one of the movies that is playing this Sunday night at the Parkade Cinema. is a movie that you directed called A Bottled Rose. Mm -hmm. uh, tell me a bit about this movie. What's it about? Um, how, how did it come to be? And, and why is it playing this Sunday night at the Parkade? This is um, what, I, what I've dubbed a feminist sci-fi it's sort of a, a high-concept thriller uh, about an abused girl um, who gains a strange new power from, from nearly surviving a car crash. And it's sort of an examination of that. It's, it's about power and how we define power, and, and it's really just sort of a, a slam-bang good time, a lot of good uh, special effects to it. It's... Um, I, I, people will walk away feeling empowered. They'll walk away questioning how we define strength in our uh, contemporary society, all that good stuff. Um, I am actually working with a friend, Sal Del Greco, who helped out on the filming of A Bottled Rose. He actually secured the film screening and the release at the Parkade Theater in Manchester. Um he was a really cool dude. He he just called me up. He's like, hey, I'm putting together this film festival. I got a bunch of other films. You want to throw your thing in? I said, yeah, sure. Why not? So um, it's it's really like to 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 date, I, I I'm really proud of it. It's certainly the the culmination of of my experience as a filmmaker, and it's really 
uh, a great story. So I hope everyone checks it out. The, so the production company, if that's the right word for it, that sure. you have you founded and are looking company. to get started. Yeah, the one-man company that you started is called Parable Media. And that's the um, organization you know, under the aegis of which you created uh, this movie, at least that's in the, I think, opening credits and end credits. And I think that you know, when the closing credits come up for this, you say uh, it's written on the screen that this is a parable from Nick Palmer. And I think that when you're describing initially how this is a, a high concept movie, a one that you hope audiences leave feeling empowered, feeling like they maybe understand the dynamics and trauma of sexual abuse in particular a bit better. Um, but that notion of parable, I think, jives pretty well with even the the title of the movie, uh, A Bottled Rose, this um, very potent uh, symbol that you have kind of condensed into one image presented on the screen. And I wonder how, you know, when working in the format of a short film, when you have aspirations to convey something that, again, is a is pretty high concept, something that you really want to have a deep emotional impact on someone in such a short time period, as a director, as someone who fills a lot of different roles in movies, could you talk to me a bit about how you look to kind of convey that kind of acute of a punch in such a short time period and how that affects the way that you look at kind of individual images as more than just part of the story, but as um, kind of vehicles for symbolic value? Sure. Yeah. Well, I, I would preface that question by starting out with what a parable is a parable is a story with you know a lot of moral fiber um the bible has parables the you know there's a lot of sort of uh dogmatic scriptures that have these sort of parables that sort of inform how best to live there's stories in 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 which we garner a, a a better way to be at one with ourselves at one with the world around us and they're, they're, they're stories that change us for the better. That's what I want uh, to have as my repertoire, my legacy for Parable Media, is have stories that are significant and, and hold meaning rather than just, you know, flashy, flashy, blah, 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 which is the, the typical rigmarole of today's, of today's movies. But really what it comes down to, especially when you have a story is kind of knowing how to present it, who you're presenting it to, and the shortest amount of images that you can present it. Um, there's a, a Chekhov, I think Anton Chekhov said something like, to do the what's necessary in the fewest amount of steps is grace. So really, um, when we look at an image or we, when we hear a sound, there's still a story there. Even if it's not a succession of images, there's still one picture has a thousand words. So knowing what those words are, uh, knowing why they need to be said, those are all sort of the, the higher level things of, of being a director, of being um, an auteur, which is a fancy French word meaning that I'm pretty much doing everything. <laughs> I'm writing, I'm directing, I'm catering. <laughs> you know, one of the pieces of advice that you... Um, kind of offered Russ, or at least we were discussing with Russ during the 48-hour uh, film project when he was working on the script, um, was he said, during a scene, you always want to arrive late and leave early. And that kind of stuck with me. And I think that um, aspiration towards brevity, towards being succinct, you know, again, works so well within 
the um, the art form of movies. You have this, you have a limited amount of time, and you really want to convey a message as powerfully as possible in that time. But as you're saying, this is also uh, this is a visual media. These are moving images. This mm-hmm. is not a parable from the Bible, and that it's a you know a text that you're reading. You have right. to convey that story and that message through images. And I, I find it so um, interesting that on the one hand, you want to have uh, you know, a, again, a strong kind of emotional and intellectual impact on your audience. But on the other, the images themselves can be quite uh, kind of like loud and and garish and flashy, not in a bad way, but in a way that really jump out at you and that kind of like a symbol, it's almost calling out to the audience as this is more than just its surface. I'm thinking of there's a, a character sitting in the passenger seat wearing a wolf's head. Yeah. Uh, there's an interrogation scene where the main character is submerged completely in darkness except for like a flash of light that is just illuminating the bottom half of her mouth. Um, Do you think about how to balance the, like the loudness of certain images with the way that you, because often I think people will say movies should be a medium of subtlety, you know, a a medium of, you know, close-ups you can't be projecting towards the people in the back of the theater because you're no longer in the theater. You're, you're projecting to the people who are looking right at the screen. So, uh, and I ask because I love riffing with you on yeah. high concept movie stuff. But tell me about how how do you balance the the loudness of the images and the kind of message that you hope to relate? Well, it's a it's that that's exactly what it is a a question of. It's a question of balance. Um, the more a person knows the story they're trying to tell, the the more they're able to hone in on on what images deserve to be certain ways. Um, the the entire purpose the entire impetus of a short form film or of any film or of art in general is how you feel it 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 means nothing if you feel nothing so the way that i angle a light or the way that i project a sound um could have a completely different meaning if i turn it down two decibels or if i shift the light 10 degrees it could mean an entirely different thing what if i illuminated her eyes instead of her mouth would that mean something different what if what if uh it was you know wasn't so submerged in darkness it would be it's just a question of um you know cultivating meaning in images that's the power of being a filmmaker and how much do you hope your audience picks up on those while watching i mean if an audience gets uh 50 of what you're hoping to relate 100 percent, 10 percent, like what is uh not to reduce it to metrics, but is there like a, a level of retention that you think means a success on your part? Like, okay, I imparted this amount at least to an audience. I did my job. Yeah. Well, I think that uh, that's definitely the, the, the nerve wracking fear of any artist is, do they get it? Is, do, does my audience get what I'm going for? Do they sit in their scenes and go, oh yeah, I see what he did there. Um, it could be 50%, it could be 100%. If I've done my job correctly, it will be 100% that that what I'm trying to convey has come across in a conducive story. I mean, audiences are not stupid. That's the the assumption of a lot of big studios is that they need to, you know, have all this flashy nonsense with no real substance or story. But uh, especially with short form, you know, the the story is is what's going to be your concrete block all of the other images um gain meaning if you have a solid character that you're following and watching them change um this is really a story about transformation uh about how we take someone who's who has no power 
and give them power and see what happens and how how they uh, adjust to it, what they do with it. And really, I feel like audiences will be right there with her. And being as kind of film literate a person as you are, this is also kind of rife with references to other movies. That, I mean, most Paramount, in my imagination, was Car- Brian De Palma's Carrie, at least with a character using uh, kind of special telekinetic powers to wreak yep. vengeance uh, based on a kind of sexual traumatic experience. But also there's there's plenty of little Red Riding Hood in this yep. as well with Dolph. But I wonder if you could tell me a bit about some of... So if this movie is playing, I should say, at uh, Parkade Cinemas in Manchester, Connecticut, 6 o'clock on Sunday night... Uh, tell me a bit about some of the other movies you've worked on. Um, this may be the most recent, but I know up at your website, Parable Media, you have a, a number of different projects on display. So when I was at um, my master's in Stanford, which is uh, something we'll talk about later, I made a series of promos for a show that I wanted to make that's based on uh, the film To Live and Die in L.A., one of my favorite films. It's William Friedkin who directs it. Really sort of, you know, sleek kind of classic L.A. crime story. It's from 1985. Yep. Oh, And it it really feels like at the height of kind of 80s glitz and glamour and decay. It's like 1985 to the core. It's like it just screams 1985. And, you know, on one hand, I have the sort of brooding, high-concept, sort of uh, pompous nonsense that I I do. And then on the other hand, I have action and gore and violence and, and flash and, like, those are the things that, that put people in the seats that people love. Um, if they're well articulated, if they're not just, you know, drab, um, you know, images, it, it'll, I, I really want it to be a show that uh, can be a lot of fun to, for people to watch. Basically, it's an actor who is sort of, you know, fledging, not even fledging, failing in his career. Um, and he's sort of doing like, you know, summer stock community theater in LA, like, who cares? And he gets a script about being a bank robber. So to study for the script, he shadows a real bank robber. And he, you know, pretty much gets into all sorts of criminal mischief. And it's sort of, uh, it's just one of those fun time kind of stories. It's, of course, not yet in development. That That's the, the key, is that I would love for somebody to give me some money to make it. <laughs> um, As he leans into the mic. Yeah. To say. But um, it's really, it, it was... It's something, uh, you know, a, a, a sort of a phantasm and a, an idea that I've had, you know, since high school. I, everyone wants to make the cool shoot 'em up TV show. So, but I mean, one thing I do think that watching these uh, these short promos or vignettes, like I, I found it almost as rewarding as watching like a, a regular short film, and I, I think that especially in juxtaposition, uh, they communicate so much about the you know, the the top level, the kind of surface layer of kind of glitz and glamour that Hollywood still contains and pervades for uh, most of the American public. And then just underneath, you know, there's someone holding a knife to someone's neck behind stage, or there's yeah. someone pulling out a samurai sword in a long kind of garish fashion and about to chop up yeah. someone's head. But the one thing that I really appreciated about those promos, and I think that is something challenging for a lot of um, new filmmakers, is that you know, if we were speaking about composition within a frame and conveying image, conveying meaning through that kind of composition of an image, here you reveal a lot of information through camera movement. You have a camera that is kind of constantly gliding back and forth, forward and backward, up and down, 
to reveal even just within like a 10 second vignette something that is surprising or titillating or something could you i mean is that something that uh technique that you were particularly eager to use for this series if it ever comes to fruition or is that something that you think of as really important to your like style as a filmmaker a a moving camera definitely i i pride myself on having a lot of control uh as a filmmaker that is really like the best thing that any artist can realize is that they are in control of the canvas that they see before them the the frame is something that uh, can reveal information, can withhold or omit information. Um, you're really playing on the audience's perspective. So when you are, you know, trucking back to show something that wasn't in the frame, that's sort of, you know, that that's a that's a stylistic device that I'm using. That's not just me saying like, oh, why don't we back it up now? That's really um, me establishing control of what I want to show audiences. And that's what's the most important thing that you can do is that once you know, again, it, it, the, even the story, even in one image, a story could be told. Um, even in a single camera movement, you can tell an entire saga of events with, you know, 10 seconds of trucking backwards. And uh, it's all about how much information is in the screen and, how much you want to show and really it's uh it's a great it, it it it's very sort of liberating when you know that you have control it actually makes your art a lot better because what holds a lot of artists back is that they don't think they're in control and they don't feel like you know oh i'm i'm painting or i'm singing or i'm writing and who's going to see it it's like well do it for you first and then once you know the technique you get better, you know, I, I don't, I, I'm not walking in here with Oscars falling out of, you know, um, I, I'm, I'm getting better as a filmmaker, but really, uh, it, the more you can tell with one shot and it, the, the better you're going to be. You're listening to Deep Focus, a radio show about movies in New Haven on WNHHLP 103.5 FM, New Haven's home for community radio. I'm your host, Tom Breen, and we're talking with Connecticut filmmaker, Nick Palmer. Uh, recently I, I had, um, Russ Martin and Lee Martin in the studio talking about their experience on the 48 and, uh, people, one of people, definitely one of, uh, you know, the more memorable parts of the conversation for me was talking about the, um, kind of the different skill sets of the director, but also the persona that one has to kind of adopt to be a competent director. And I think that control is a really important part of that. Um, and I was wondering how, kind of natural it comes, you know, came to Russ's personality or Lee's personality and how much they had to kind of assume that role, kind of step outside of their comfort zone to exercise the type of control and ease um, that is so critical for a director to both realize their artistic vision and then also make sure that everyone else uh, can support that. So um, I wonder one how natural this uh, the kind of abilities required of a director are to you, and also kind of transitioning a bit to your education. How much did you pick up at FTMA at this master's program at, at Sacred Heart? Well, it's a great. First of all, it's it's an incredible program. I highly recommend it because it really is nestled in what's called the the creative corridor. A lot of the the issue is with, that you know you could go to new york the only place you can get a master's is you go to new york you know you have to move to new york 
And those master's programs are like five years long. They're very expensive. And you learn pretty much what you would learn there in one year in the FTMA, which is right in downtown Stanford. And yeah, a lot of what they taught us were actually really uh, simple and salient lessons that could be translated across all of life. Um, leave your ego at the door, you know, uh, the, the less egotistical you are with your work, the better it's going to be because there are certain things that like, you know, if it can, if it can end up on the cutting room floor, it will. It's, it's just one of those things where it's like, you know, some, some guy for some studio is going to look at it and be like, can the story be told without this shot or without this scene? All right, get rid of it. And you got to be all right with that. You got to kind of kill your darlings and, and let it go. And that's part of the discipline of being uh, an artist or being a filmmaker. Um, other other stuff that they taught us, yeah, is, is exhibiting control. Um, pretty much, you know, it, it it's a, a blend of being, you know, the community leader and the dictator. Because, like, you want to encourage the people around you to help you but at the end of the day it's my movie and I, and I do with what I want with it um it, that's that's not so much of a, a a you know prideful thing that's more of me just having integrity in in the story I have to tell I you need to be like a leader you know you need to everyone looks to you as a director to say okay where, where, what next where, where do I set up the camera and I've been in that position where I've been scratching my head, and I'm like, oh yeah, that's a good question. What what do I do now? I, I want another donut at the craft services. So it's definitely, uh, yeah, those are just, again, like a lot of the most simplistic lessons, a lot of the best lessons for any filmmaker are just, you know, don't be afraid to work hard and don't be too much of an egomaniac. <laughs> How much of your education at that program in particular was watching movies and talking about movies with peers or teachers like all the time and how much of it was making movies kind of putting yourself behind the camera and actually going out there and, and doing it. it it was it was straight down the middle very much um you know reflective studying a lot of you know just putting in, putting in the legwork you know just like how architects have to read books upon books of you know old bascule stuff old gothic stuff you know we watched old movies and we we looked at hitchcock and we looked at scorsese and we looked at how stories are told in different ways um you know one of the you know there there's examples of assignments where we would have one story and we would all tell it in our own way in our own different way or we would have a story and we would tell it in a director's way like you had you have to make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and you got to tell it like how Martin Scorsese would tell it. And I'd be like, well, first I take the jelly out of the can, <laughs> you know, Rolling Stones playing in the background <laughs> or Quentin Tarantino, like, yeah. you know, shooting at the bread, you know? So I love that. That yeah. it sounds like such a fun exercise. I, I yeah. was talking with a, a high school filmmaker from New Haven somewhat recently who made a Caden Rodham's boy. He made a movie called Ace, which is this kind of cyborg buddy drama, but it's very indebted to the type of revenge fantasies that one sees in Quentin Tarantino movies a lot, nice. whether Kill Bill or Pulp Fiction or Reservoir Dogs. Um, and we were talking about how as a young filmmaker, I think it's a really great thing to kind of maybe mimic is too pejorative of a word, but to really try to 
make something akin to what you love to watch. Emulate. And your style, your own kind of unique thing about you will evolve. But when you're just starting out, I th- think about what you respond to the most and then give try doing that. Don't only do that. But, you know, I, I really, I think that is one great way, especially when you're relatively new to the equipment, that style of form, you know, that style of storytelling. Um, I think Quentin Tarantino is a great person to start aping because he has such a, you know, strong and recognizable style and such a fun one. But are there any filmmakers that you look to as maybe not people that you want to emulate shot by shot, but uh, people who really inspire you as a movie maker? Definitely. There's, there are a vast number of, of names that I could drop that are, that are in between that are people that I try to emulate and people that I look up to just in terms of the path of success that they took. Uh, A lot of people like Richard Linklater, uh, Paul Thomas Anderson, um, even, you know, Wes Anderson, Noah Baumbach. A lot of these guys are people who are just not afraid to put in the work. They're, they're, they're really sort of very, uh, entrepreneurial, I guess is the word autonomous. They're sort of the guys who are the writers, directors, producers. Those are the guys that I look up to because they're working outside of, of studio control and, and all the conglomeration that comes with it. Um, they are doing what they love with people that they respect and value. And um, really, that's what it's all about. At the end of the day, you know, we're not curing cancer here. We're not building rockets. We're making movies. It's, it should be fun. So, um, and, and the more fun that you have on set and the, the better of an experience it is, uh, that reads uh, across the screen. I mean, people can tell when you have a bunch of passionate people together to make a film. So you are, you're from Trumbull, Connecticut. I am. Is that right? And you went to school and at least grad school in Stanford. Um, we're talking in New Haven now. So I get the impression that you've, you know, worked in a number of different places across the state. So I wonder as, as someone who is still a young filmmaker with a lot of, you know, filmmaking I was aspirations a fry cook down in Baton Rouge. <laughs> no, I wasn't. I wasn't. Which would be cool too, but for the purposes of hyperlocal radio, we're going to forget that yes. part of your life. Um, but I wonder about you know the community of filmmakers and you know film lovers that you've uh, worked with in Connecticut. What kind of filmmaking scene do you see here in the Nutmeg State? Do you think that it's a particularly um, kind of fostering and supportive one? Have you found enough different people with different talents that you can work with? Are you always looking towards New York and Boston for? your uh, different resources to make your own movies? Definitely burgeoning is, is the word. Uh, if there's only good things to come for, for Connecticut filmmakers because, um, you know, a lot, what with the, the tax write-offs, the job programs that we've recently come into for Connecticut filmmakers, where if you have a crew that's over 50% Connecticut residents, they give you something like 30% tax write-off. It's deductible and, you know, we're we're trying to encourage the arts here. Um, there, there's a lot of, you know, let's let's kick the ballistics. Let's bring it to basics. There's like a lot of good land. There's a lot of good studio space. Uh, it's cheap, and it's really um, kind of almost the the second film capital. Uh, I would I would even call Connecticut the next the next great film state. Um, the 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 problem the the the, not the problem, but like the the great thing and also the not so great thing about New York is that it's oversaturated, that everyone goes there to be a filmmaker. Everyone goes to Los Angeles to be a filmmaker. Like 
there there's it's just one of those things where the market value for that kind of work it's it's to the point where it's industrial it's like you're you know on the on the conveyor belt and um what i like about connecticut is that you have a lot of homegrown artisans a lot of really local artists that are just getting together for the for the passion and love of of doing it um i've worked on film sets in in new york where you know the the first words said to me are who the heck are you you know get a name tag ah like you know and that's all well and good but i want to live and work and and do uh passion projects that i'm passionate about uh and i find that more often in connecticut than anywhere else and in terms of the people that you work with, I mean, not just the different resources available to you, but the, I mean, do you feel like you're a part of a community of filmmakers here? Yes, I do. It's um, really like, it's really well knit. I've worked with the same, you know, 10 or 15 people a couple times in a row now. And uh, they're some of the most capable and passionate people that I've ever worked with. And I really see just good things happening for Connecticut and especially, um, and even, you know, in other states uh, besides Connecticut, even places, you know, like Atlanta, uh, places like Boston, um, you know, these are places where we're, we're approaching a, a, an age where a lot of the, the independence and autonomy, these principles of like anybody can do anything, where anyone can pick up an iPhone and make a movie, that's sort of translating into, you know, well, if I, if I can pick up my phone and make a movie, why can't I make a studio why can't i you know make a film set why can't i film right here and right now why can't i appeal to you know uh, the governor or you know to local government to have tax write-ups and stuff um it's really it's a growing community of people and and it's and it's happening with music too it's happening with you know playwrights with writing it's people are people are revolting I think, you know, it's as much as it pains me to say, we're just about out of time, Nick. I'm so oh. sorry. I know this, there's never enough time, time but flies. I think that's a nice, you know, call to arms for young local filmmakers to, to end on. But before we go, uh, where are some places on the internets or elsewhere that people can learn more about so your if, movies? And, yeah, and sure. If, if you want to check out um, Parable Media in, in its glory, uh, you go to parablemedia.format.com. Um, I have all of, you know, I have a gallery there. I have, you know an about me section and stuff like that um if you want to check out a bottled rose it's totally worth it it's at the parkade theater in manchester connecticut at 6 p.m on sunday august 21st um it's hosted by a beautiful man named sal del greco uh if you look on um either i guess my facebook i don't know if i should just give his number over the radio but it's it's five dollars call ahead seven dollars at the door totally worth it um you know, I busted my hump making this thing. We've got a lot of filmmakers who have worked very hard to to make these films, and your your uh, patronage is always appreciated, Connecticut. Well, we will. I we will see you there on Sunday night, Nick. Thank you so much thank for coming you, by the studio and chatting. Awesome, man. Thanks, dude. All right. So you're listening to Deep Focus, a radio show about movies in New Haven. I'm your host, Tom Breen. Coming up next is.
When I'm cold and hungry, would you turn me away? And if I had no money, would you beg me to stay? Welcome back to Deep Focus, a radio show about movies in New Haven. I'm your host, Tom Breen. Indignation, the new movie adaptation of the 2008 Philip Roth novel, stars Logan Lerman as Marcus Messner, the son of a Jewish butcher, or maybe I should say the son of a kosher butcher from Newark, New Jersey, who finds himself self-exiled to the American heartland of Winesburg, Ohio. The year is 1951, and Marcus is angry and afraid. He's angry about his father's paranoia and distrust. He's afraid of being drafted and killed in the Korean War. He's angry about the suffocating moral strictures of the Gentile, repressed, tradition-bound Winesburg College. He's afraid that one small sexual transgression will lead to a life of sin cut short by an early, merciless, but well-deserved death. So, Alan, I wonder if we could start (laughs) our conversation about this movie by looking to the title. As you left the theater, did you sympathize with Marcus Messner's helpless, self-righteous confusion and fury as a series of small decisions inexplicably lead to his doom? Or did you find yourself maybe not angry or afraid, but rather filled with indignation at having to sit through another high-concept, low-budget movie <laughs> to review for this show? Uh, the, the, the number two. <laughs> oh, number no. two. I actually, I, I actually, and I, you know what I also noticed, um, Tom, you introduced the movie as, as, as the, the, uh, the, the taking place in Winesburg, Ohio, and it's not, there's no S in there. Right, it's it's wine, and I, and I think it's an interesting mistake because I think Philip Roth wants you to think of Winesburg, Ohio, Winesburg, Ohio, That's like oh. like the heart of the heart of the heart of the milk to- white bread milk milky Midwest. Uh, in fact, it's Weinberg, uh, which is a little weird. So uh, I mean, it's a kind of in joke. I, I think for people who know their american lit references so in i didn't even recognize it was a joke but uh, an important correction to make but so you <laughs> so so the, so why am i talking about this and not and again evading your question you know i actually uh for the first time in my career sitting here in your curmudgeon's chair i actually um got a hold of a copy of the novel and i read it and there is a there is a place in the in the text of the novel where the word indignation is italicized and um uh, I, I don't, un, I, I can't quite remember why it's so important. Oh my gosh, you read the book too. <laughs> the so, book as well. so what in what in the world? What in the world does the title mean? Who's who, who, whose indignation are we talking about? Because I mean, there are an awful lot of emotions going on in this this movie. Many of them, I think, um, unearned and dishonest and in the wrong place. But indignation is not one of them. So help me. So I, I do want to say that in in the book, um, the title 
is a bit more, uh, you know, it, it's a bit more understandable as to why the book's been named Indignation because it is Marcus Messner's favorite word in the English language, and he recites it whenever he sings a Chinese national anthem that he used to sing uh, while in grade school during World War II. It was a, a, a rebellious anthem about the Chinese rising up against various imperial oppressors. And so whenever he is in a situation that he feels as if he's being unjustly stamped upon, he recalls that Chinese anthem, and he thinks of the Chinese rising up with great indignation and no longer being these uh these slave bondsmen and so i i think that the tie between the title and uh the contents of the book makes a bit more sense than the title in the movie but i i mean indignation i think is i think it's kind of a wonderful title for what marcus messner seems to live his life by which is helpless anger i mean i think of someone when i think of indignation i think of someone who can barely control how frustrated they are but they also feel completely helpless to remedy the situation and as we track marcus's progression from kind of neuroses to neurosis um from concern over this you know very small seemingly inconsequential decisions that he makes on a day-to-day basis kind of rolling 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 picking up moss and finally rolling him to his doom and death in, in the korean war i think that this sense that he has absolutely no control and is really angry about it that that's the indignation that this movie is tracking but lucy when you were thinking about the title of the movie as we were watching did you find it a bit baffling or did you see indignation exuding from logan lerman's performance no i i think it's fair to say that that is the style in which he he sort of lives in the confines of the word that's how he lives his life but i think it's so interesting as as someone who has not read the book but i've read a number of books by philip roth um, I, I think it's really interesting to think about, you know, what, what a film adaptation does, what it does well, what it doesn't do well. And I think like that scene where we understand his connection with the word indignation would have been so interesting to have in the film. And, you know, you're always making a, a decision or a const, a number of decisions about what to include and what not to include. Um, but that wasn't in there. Well, there's there's a lot that's not in there, but, but... And perhaps the most cinematic moment in the book, which is this snowball fight that culminates the story when there's like this explosion of sexual repression, it, that's nowhere near the movie. Now, I imagine for budget concerns, maybe they didn't want to include it, but thinking about oh, movie so, adaptations it's, it's, of books, did you, did you find this a compelling kind of cinematic realization of a literary story or an unnecessary well, one? Um, is that addressed to me? Well... <laughs> Here, here the, the old Hollywood axiom, as you know, uh, is that you can make a great movie out of a mediocre book, but a great book is very hard to make into a good movie. Then this book is, a, a, you know, I must say, is this is a mediocre book, guys. And the, actually, the movie rescues it, in my mind, somewhat. But this is, this is a deeply, deeply flawed book. And, uh, I mean, that's the problem. Uh, the the uh, the movie um, rescues it in a certain way, but let me do, the, the the flaws of the book are, to my mind, that um, you know, getting back to indignation, the, Marcus Messner's real problem is not indignation. That's a funny false word. I mean, this this is this kid is um, uh, uh, is furious. I mean, there are terrible things going on in this kid's life, mainly in his relationship with his father which is absolutely paralleled with uh, his love interest, Olivia, and her relationship with her father. We never 
see her father. And as far as Marcus and his father go, I don't know what your experience of uh, learning about that relationship in the novel was, Tom, but I thought those first 30 or 40 pages where we have these intense descriptions of the father sharpening knives and splitting the the uh, the, 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 the guts of chickens and lambs and um, and you can hear the knives being sharpened and the blood all over the place. Uh, and, uh, and this boy sort of helping out and sort of being, uh, 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 you know, on the, the cutting edge of, uh, both taking a step away from that life into this new world of, uh, of, into, uh, in intellectual achievement, but also the father's, the, the, the issue is engaged. The father has this incredible fear of the son's, um, peril and the Holocaust is sort of in the background there. It's never acknowledged. And then, and then um, the relationship with the father, which is so beautifully described in prose that's graphic and detailed, is totally lost. And, uh, you know, if I were the editor uh, and Philip Roth for his 29th book does not need an editor, Roth drops the entire thing, all the action shifts to Winesburg, Ohio, or wherever this is, and he never resolves the relationship with the father at all nor does Olivia deal with her father. So all you see in the rest of the movie is the symptoms of an unresolved conflict that, um, that we are teased with, but isn't, that's a fatal flaw. And the second fatal flaw... Wait, can we, let's stick with this first fatal flaw. Well, because the second I think, one is even better. Well, let me, I want to get Lucy's response, because I, I do think that the, in the book in particular, there's a lot of discussion of the parallels between the ritual slaughter that the father performs as the kosher butcher and also the ritual slaughter that Olivia tried to perpetrate against herself in slashing her wrists. And I think that those allusions to the Holocaust are there. They were at the back of my mind while I was reading it. And I, I didn't, you know, there, there may have been one explicit reference, but I, I didn't find it necessary for him to kind of explicitly look back to that moment in very recent history based on the time period of the book. I found the parallels between the father's profession, what's happening out in Korea, and Olivia's own background quite compelling. But Lucy, when we saw the movie, you immediately commented upon how you found the relationship between the father and the son very lacking, particularly because of the father's, the actor who played the father, his, his acting abilities. But one thing I thought was incredible about the movie over the book was the performance of Sarah Gadon as Olivia Hutton. I thought she really brought a relatively underwritten and kind of flat character to life through the pathos that she demonstrated in every look, every glance, the way that she extends her wrist uh, for the scar to be seen or not seen. Did you respond to that character's performance in a very male-dominated movie as much as I did? Yeah, I I think so. I mean, her performance, and then also there's a, there's the person playing the mother um, in this, and I think there are some interesting moments, especially when the mother meets the Olivia Hutton character and immediately notices the scar on Olivia's wrist that Marcus, on their first and only date, has failed to notice. And I feel like that they do really well in the movies. In they do that it you, extremely well, The camera yeah. can just pan down to the wrist, and without any word being you know, dispelled, you see what the mother sees. Yeah, I mean, there are some things that film as a medium can do that literature is, you know, as a, as a medium can just not do. But I, I want to return to this idea of, of the father just really quickly. I did not find him super successful. I don't think this is a, a entirely promising actor. But the one scene uh, in which I thought the father-son relationship and sort of the father-son relationship with Olivia in the middle of it all was really, really interesting and, and also brought in this move of um, like what's happening to Jewish communities in the middle of the 20th century. Um, 
with a move towards secularism. So Olivia is not Jewish, and that's something that the movie uh, doesn't spend a ton of time on and isn't super explicit about, but uh, it's interesting nonetheless. But it's this dream sequence that Marcus has, um, and he at one point opens the freezer in the butcher shop and his father is in there with the cuts of meat. And it's totally a quotation of Luis Bunuel from Los Olividados, excuse me. And that, I mean like that for me, so the father is shivering and he's not speaking. Um, and it's just a quick cut to his very helpless face. That was the best moment for that. Actor I agree. It's nightmarish. Movie. It's yeah. surreal. It uses the blood of the butcher shop mm-hmm. and the kind of devastation that this relationship with Olivia is having on his family so well. And it's also not in the book. That scene yeah. is not in the book. Well, that's right. And 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 it adds it adds the kind of um, um, qualities that the book doesn't have. I should also point out, and I agree with you that one of the one of the uh, uh, the additional graces that the movie adds to the book is that it uh, it. It folk. It really. Um, um, it begins with Olivia. I mean, we have the opening sequence of, of the um, the issue about Korea. I don't buy any of it, by the way. I think it's totally false. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do like the idea. We, we see Olivia at an advanced age, and and it brings her front and center, and she very much is alive. Uh, and I would certainly say a far more sympathetic uh, character that I'm involved with than Marcus who's a little putz and I feel about him the way his roommates feel about him. Uh, we, we, you don't have any sympathy for him cause you, cause he's never engaged with his father. He's running away from all kinds of crap and Philip Roth, um, you know, it, it famously, uh, you know, is afflicted by, um, from his love for, for a Kafka about whom he's written at some length. And I think what they, what the whole mood of this black and white and gray movie, it's very blah, blah, blah. I mean, it's not quite the black and white, of noir, but it has no doesn't ha- yet have the color of the. It's an overexposed revolution. movie where the windows are always blindingly bright. Right, with light, the right? production ideas were stuck somewhere between yeah. the uptight fifties and and the and the wild sixties, and you know it, it's sort of like like Mad Men with no vitamins and stuff like that. <laughs> Every and you know I mean I'm old enough to have uh, you know kind of a whiff of the fifties in in my senses and. Uh, yeah, it was uptight, but everybody, all these characters, including uh, Tracy Letts as the dean, who is the sort of nemesis, all I'm saying is that I think Phil Broth has got some sort of uh, idea that Marcus Messner is Joseph K., and he moves through this world where terrible things happen to him, and his his self-knowledge, it doesn't allow him to... I mean, w- w- you know, and the issues are not Joseph K.'s issues. This, this feels like a sort of a big idea that wants to be engaged, but crammed into this kind of um, uh, small domestic story that is not even understood. So we, this we thing only really have, troubles, troubles me. We, we only have a few minutes left, and I, I want to make sure that I ask you too about this movie's representation of a, a Jewish character who, uh, who is also a self-identified atheist. And I know that you know Philip Roth, as a Jewish author, all of his characters tend to follow a pretty similar mold. They're uh, pretty kind of sexually neurotic young men who see in their kind of sexual proclivities both a realm of excitement and also a realm of like uh, 
extreme censorship from the kind of goyish world around him, but also of his own kind of neuroses and fears. And I wonder, there's this, you know, both great and way too long scene in the middle of this movie where he's fighting with the dean of men about whether he should self-identify as a Jewish person or as an atheist. And the dean feels strongly that he should identify as someone with some kind of religious affiliation, and he's arguing otherwise. Um, it'll go from Alan to Lucy, but as as a representation of a Philip Roth story, but also as a Jewish atheist story, did you think this movie, this story, had anything interesting to say about what it's like to to live one's life uh, under you know a uh, moral code as a Jewish person and an atheist, or are those just the arbitrary trappings of a character? that happened to be at the center of this movie. Well, that scene is a reflection of Philip Roth's whole career where, where, you know, he uh, was always at odds with the Jewish community and identifying with the Jewish community and, um, and uh, sort of, sort of feeling that he was uh, uh, writing about grander themes, you know, Kafka-esque themes, although Kafka was very Jewish. Um, But so uh, what I, and I think that um, uh, it, it, it reflects the 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 conflict in fact it's it's um right the scene is uh, uh how did you know that my father was a kosher butcher i only wrote butcher so it's tracy let's assumes because he's jewish that it's a kosher butcher i mean it's a very sophomoric um kind of uh and the he's a college sophomore so so there's something kind of touching about that scene and true about that scene and i think it it certainly um is very it's very true to Philip Roth's whole whole career. He always resented um, not getting the Nobel Prize. He got a Pulitzer Prize, but one of the reasons you know, but Saul Bellow gets the Nobel Prize because here's a Jewish guy, very Jewish guy, uh, you know, Yiddish speaking guy, but who writes about very big themes. And Philip Roth's problem is not that he uh, is writing about Jewish stuff, but that he's writing about. Um, uh, a lot of uh, kind of stuff of less pitch and moment. Bring us on, Lucy. What do you think of the representation of uh, Judaism, atheism, uh, the topics discussed therein in this movie? Yeah, um, honestly, I, th- I thought it was fine. I, I didn't find it incredibly compelling. I didn't find it very thoughtful, and I didn't think it dug super deep. I would recommend to listeners of, of Deep Focus that instead of spending time seeing going out and seeing this movie, they listened to an interview with New Haven's Sydney Perry and Paul Bass's uh, High Haven because she is super woke and it is a super uh, feminist, fun interview that will leave you feeling, I think, a lot happier about the state of human affairs than this movie. That's right. And my recommendation, in case you were going to ask me, Tom, is is that uh, uh, indignation should be seen as a warm-up to the, a book that uh, Roth wrote a couple of years later called Nemesis, which is also based on kind of autobiography and what it does very successfully, uh, since you haven't asked, followed up and asked me what the second <laughs> severe flaw is, is that right after this wonderful sequence, when we learn about the father, we learn that, um, the story is being told after death. And in fact, the father's fear that the boy died. We know he died, uh, immediately. So it pulls the rug out under the whole narrative thing, but it doesn't really work because he's died at age 19 with no additional wisdom than he had, during the uh, narrative. However, Nemesis beautifully, beautifully balances that leak. of mm-hmm. It's a spectacular movie. Um, I mean, a book. And I think um, Indignation is, is, is worth a trip if you're a Philip Roth uh, fanatic, but it's a warm-up to Nemesis. Well, he has an eternity to ref- reflect upon his life. Yes, he does. 
All right, Alan, Lucy, thank you so much for coming in and chatting. Thank you, Tom. You're very welcome. All right, you've been listening to Deep Focus on WNHHLP 103.5 FM. We will catch up with you next week.